When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea rose because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to them. They were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite subjects when I was in seminary was Hebrew. I took uh, two years of language classes in Hebrew, uh, largely because I found it so helpful in studying the Old Testament. The language is rich and deep in its meaning, and I really enjoyed it. Now, one of the very first words that we learned is called the tetragrammaton. That refers to the four Hebrew letters that make up this word, yod, he, vav, he. In Hebrew, it's referred to as Hashem, which means the name, and it's the holy name of God. For Christians, we pronounce this word as Yahweh, but for faithful Jews, they don't pronounce it at all because they would look upon this word as so holy that it should not be pronounced by human tongues. Now, the word itself, this name of God, means I am. You might remember the story of Moses. After Moses had killed an Egyptian, he had to flee the country. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he killed the Egyptian. And now he knew that his life was in jeopardy, so he left the country, went out into the wilderness, and became a shepherd. On one occasion, one of his sheep wandered off, and he went to go find it. And he heard the voice of God calling him. Now, God spoke to Moses and told him he was to return to Egypt and set the Hebrew people free from slavery. Moses asked God, what is the name that I give to the people when they ask who sent me? Now, you have to remember that Egypt was a polytheistic country, and there were a multitude of gods with all different attributes. And so Moses knew that if he had gone to the people and said, God sent me to save you, they would have asked, which God? And so I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 3, this exchange between Moses and God. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, because this name that means I am is so holy, people of the Jewish faith will not say it when they're reading text. Instead, they will say the word Adonai, which means Lord. And They really didn't want anybody to make the mistake of accidentally pronouncing the holy name of God. Originally, when the Hebrew texts were written, they were written only in consonants. Later on, uh, they came back in and inserted vowels to help with pronunciation. 
but because they didn't want anybody to inadvertently, accidentally say the name of God, they took the vowels of Adonai and inserted those into the consonants of the holy name of God. Later on, a priest came across this name and realized and proclaimed that the holy name of God is pronounced Jehovah. But of course, that's a mispronunciation because it has the wrong vowels with the right consonants. I think God knows his name and God's okay with what we call it, but that's a mispronunciation. Now, we have a tendency to follow a little bit of this tradition because when the Hebrew people, when the Jewish people will read their text and come to the name of God, Hashem, the name, they say Adonai in its place. Adonai means Lord. In your Old Testament, when you come across the word Lord with a capital L followed by lowercase letters, it's a translation of the word Adonai. When you come across the word Lord and it's in all capital letters, Adonai is what the Jewish people would say, but that's a translation of the holy name of God. And so we're, in a way, following suit and reading uh, a different word for the holy name. It's translated from the word that the Jews would speak in that instance, Adonai. But we're given the insight by the all caps that it actually is the holy name of God. Well, in our Hebrew classes, in respect to the Jewish tradition, we never pronounced the name of God. We would always say Adonai when we were reading the text. And I know that this means I am. And so when I come to the Gospel of John and hear over and over Jesus make these declarations, I am the bread of life or I am the way, it always filled me with this sense of wonder of of the power of, of what Jesus was saying. And I couldn't help but imagine what the audiences at that time were hearing when Jesus made these bold declarations connecting himself to God. Of course, this is one of the main themes of the Gospel of John. From the very beginning, John is trying to let us know that Jesus is God. It starts off in the very first chapter, very first verse, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And after that, we have so many declarations of these I am statements. You may remember back in chapter 4 when we cover that, uh, Jesus sat down by a well and had a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And at one point in the conversation, she told Jesus, I know that someday the Messiah will come. And when he does, he will teach us all things. And Jesus responds by saying, I am the one you speak of. Well, you get to uh, chapter 6 that we're looking at today. There are four times that Jesus says, I am. He goes on to make the following declarations. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living water. I am the true vine. I am the light in the darkness. Maybe the strongest one that he makes is found in John chapter 8. We'll get to that in just a few weeks. And when you read it, it's where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and he declares to them, 
Before Abraham was, I am. Now, when you know what that word I am is referring to, can you imagine what they were thinking and how they reacted? This morning, I'm bringing to a close our sermon series, Finding the Way. But Finding the Way is our theme throughout this year. We're making a commitment to finding our way to a deeper relationship with God, to helping others find their way to Christ, and finding ways to make a difference in the world where we live. Now, this theme comes from one of the I am statements of Christ in the Gospel of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This year, we are committing ourselves to following the way, following Christ, because we know that Jesus is I am. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who is. Now, why this is so important for us to learn, I think there are three different things that we can talk about to help us see the importance and how it makes a difference in our lives. First, because Jesus is God, we need not fear. Now, in today's scripture, it follows the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's right before Jesus goes on to have more I am statements. But this is the story of Jesus coming to the disciples when they are out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the storms come up. They had just left the feeding of the 5,000. They had just seen this miracle And yet they get into this boat and they go out onto the sea and a storm comes up and the rains are beating against them and the waves are about to capsize the boat. And in the midst of this, they become full of fear. Now, remember, they had just seen Jesus perform the miracle of the feeding. And yet Jesus isn't with them right now. And so they are full of fear And in the midst of the darkness, they can make out a figure approaching them. And then they realize it's Jesus walking on the water toward them. And Jesus tells them, it is I, do not be afraid. Except that's not what he really said. The translation uh, has been changed a little to make it a, a little easier to read. Because what he really said is, I am, do not be afraid. Now, they changed it to something that's a little less awkward. It is I. But the whole purpose of this statement is to tell the disciples, even though I wasn't with you in that moment, I am. God is. Not just God is with you, God is. And therefore, you do not have to be afraid. That is the whole point of this message, that because God is, we do not need to fear. It's been over 25 years ago that St. Luke's went to Russia. Now, we went for that first visit not knowing what would happen. We didn't realize, of course, that three churches would come out of the relationships we built, different pastors, different ministries. But on that first visit, we weren't sure what was going to happen. We met the acquaintance of one couple, Sasha and Margaret, And the people who stayed with them on the first night, Sasha and Margaret exclaimed to this St. Luke's couple that they were atheist. And so nobody was sure how that one was going to go. Now, Sasha and Margaret 
didn't realize that God had been in their life all their life. Later on, they would come to know God, give their life to Christ, and especially for Margaret, because she was such an influential leader in the community, she became an integral part of the new church, First United Methodist Church of Ulyanovsk. They also didn't realize the changes and things that would happen in their own family. Uh, Sasha and Margaret had a daughter named Marina, and they had a granddaughter named Lena. When Lena was just a few months old, she suffered a very high-temperature fever, and it caused her to lose her hearing. She was deaf. Because of that, the Russian government wanted to place her in an institution. That's what happened. Uh, Children with handicaps or people who were disabled were sent away, and that's what they were going to do to Lena. And Marina and her family were desperate to keep their daughter and raise her at home. Can you imagine a greater fear than the risk of losing your child? And so they approached the government, and they went through all the systems and filled out tons of paperwork uh, just to prove that they would take care of her and they wouldn't let her become a burden on the government. Finally, they were able to uh, win that argument, and they were able to keep Lena and raise her at home. But when the St. Luke's family of faith arrived in Russia, they had developed this incredible relationship over time. It gave way to the church. And not too long after, Lena was brought to the U.S. by St. Luke's, and her hearing was restored. Sasha and Margaret couldn't have foreseen that kind of miracle in the midst of their earlier fears. But they also couldn't have foreseen the ministry that would continue on and on. One of the greatest things that I think has happened over in Russia is the institution of a second church in Ulyanovsk. The first United Methodist Church, Ulyanovsk, uh, gave way to a second church named St. Luke's in our church's honor, and it was established in a residential institution. It was probably very likely a place where Lena would have been sent to, if not the one, uh, one very much like it. It was full of people who had been sent away because of their handicaps or infirmities. I had the ability to go visit the St. Luke's congregation several years ago when I went to Russia, and I found these people who had been sent away. They were outcasts from society. They had grown up and lived almost their entire lives in this institution. And much of their physical uh, problems would have been helped by modern therapies, but those weren't available to them. But more than their physical problems, they suffered from loneliness because they were really set aside. They had very few visitors. And so for the fact that Uh, This church was created in their midst more than anything else that it accomplished. It carried the message, God is. And let them know they were not forgotten. They were important to God. They were loved by God and their lives mattered. It's one of the most beautiful ministries I've seen that we do. And it's because God is. Because Jesus is God, we can set aside our fears and focus on the ministry at hand. Second, 
Because Jesus is God, our needs, our deepest needs are provided for, especially when it comes to ministry. When you think about the feeding of the 5,000 story, it's in all four Gospels. There is a crowd of over 5,000 men. They didn't count the women and children, so it was a huge crowd of people. They had been there hours and hours listening to Jesus teach and preach, and they were getting hungry. Jesus knew that they had a long walk home, and so he had compassion on them. And he turned to his disciples and he said, feed them. Well, one of the disciples, Philip, said to Jesus, we'll never have enough money to feed all these people. Another disciple, Andrew, brought this little boy forward and he said, well, this little boy has five loaves of bread and and two fish, but what is that among so many? Now, you've heard us share before that there are a couple different ways of looking at this miracle. We can look at it that Jesus took these five pieces of bread and the two fish, and with only divine power, supernaturally multiplied the food and distributed to the people. Absolutely, that could have happened. But another way to look at it is that this selfless gift by this little boy, this offering to Jesus, Jesus took this gift and made an example of it and inspired all the people to share what food they had so that everybody was fed that day. And for me, when I think about this huge crowd of people, there are no stores, no restaurants, and they're all hungry, facing a long walk home, for this crowd to consider sharing what they had with others, I think that's a rich, beautiful miracle. Either way, Jesus took the gift from this little boy and he fed the crowd. Now, what I find interesting is that in all four Gospels, they tell the story, but only John mentions this little boy's gift. This little boy is not in any of the other Gospels. It wasn't part of the way they wanted to tell the story. And so I asked myself, why did John include it? Because more than the other Gospels, John wants to show Jesus as God. And if he hadn't included the part about the little boy, all the focus would have been on Jesus acting out this miracle. But I think the point of this story is that John is showing us that Jesus takes the gifts that we bring, the small as they are, we might not think they're enough, Jesus takes what we have and provides for our needs, especially for ministry. Jesus took the lunch of a little boy and fed the entire crowd with it. When I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but be reminded of Bruno Serrato. You remember that Dr. Long has shared about him. He is the owner of the White House restaurant in Anaheim, California. We went to visit him, the executive team, Dr. Long, myself, Reverend Phil Greenwald, Reverend Josh Attaway, because we wanted to learn more about this incredible food ministry that they do. Uh, Bruno was challenged by his mother, Katerina, several years ago to feed the homeless children of the Boys and Girls Club where he volunteered. And out of that directive from his mom came Katerina's Club that now feeds almost 5,000 children every day. Well, we were able to go visit the restaurant and we saw the relatively small kitchen where they prepared all this food, the pasta and the sauce, 
We saw the area where the drivers would come in and pick up the trays of food and, and then take them to the agencies which would distribute the food. While we were there, we also saw another ministry that he started. It's a hospitality training ministry that takes teenagers and uh, teaches them the aspects of the food industry so that they could become cooks or waiters or hostess staff. And we were able to see that in action. Bruno Serrato sat down with us, very generous with his time, a gracious man and a, a man of deep faith. While we were there, we also picked up his books that he's written uh, to benefit Katerina's Club, and I've been reading that book. And I read about the story of how he came to the United States in the first place. When he was a young man, his older sister married an American, and they moved to California. And not too long afterwards, uh, Bruno was about 20 years old, and he had saved up about $200, and he decided to try his fortune in California. So he moved in with his sister and her husband, and he knew he had to learn the English language because he didn't know anything. But after a few weeks at their home, he realized his training wasn't getting him very far, and he was going a little stir-crazy. And so he asked his sister to take him to find a job. Now, she had to go with him because she had to translate And she took him to this really fancy French restaurant. And she told the owner of the restaurant, this is my brother Bruno. He doesn't speak English, but he's a fast learner, and he would be a wonderful waiter for you. Now, the owner of the restaurant said, if he can't speak English, I can't put him at the front of the house. But I can't offer him a job as a dishwasher. Now, Bruno's older sister was angry. She's very protective of her younger brother, and she was indignant that he offered a dishwasher job to her brother that had worked in some of the finest restaurants in all of Italy. And so she told Bruno, we're leaving. And Bruno asked her to translate, wait. And finally, embarrassed, she said, he only wants to give you a dishwasher position. And Bruno said, I'll take it. He knew that he would work hard and and it would change his position and he would learn the language. And sure enough, that's what happened. Within a year, he was a waiter at the front of the house. He had learned enough English. Within three years, they had created a maitre d' position just for him. And within six years of his arrival to the U.S., he was given a special award by the Southern California Restaurant Writers Association, they named Bruno as the Mater D of the Year. And that brought a great deal of uh, notoriety to him. Not too long after that award, there was a Mater D from another restaurant that came to eat when Bruno was working. And he said that because of kind of the industry, uh, you treat one another. And so he paid for this man's meal. And this man said, look, let me return the favor I work at the White House restaurant in Anaheim. Come and let me uh, treat you to dinner sometime. Not too long after that, Bruno uh, went with his brother and sister-in-law who were visiting at the time, and they went to eat at the White House restaurant. And Bruno said, as soon as I walked up, I fell in love with it. I loved my job at the French restaurant, but I fell in love with this building, this restaurant, how it was laid out, everything about it I loved. And on the way out, I told my brother, 
man, I would love to own this restaurant someday. Well, as it happened, a few months after that, this maitre d' from the White House restaurant called up Bruno out of the blue and said, the owner is selling the White House restaurant. And Bruno said, well, I hope somebody good buys it. And his friend said, well, I was hoping that would be you, Bruno. Bruno started laughing. He said, I have basically the same $200 that I came to this country with. And the maitre d' said, look, it's not going to hurt anything. Just sit down with the owner and see what happens. And so a few days later, Bruno was sitting across the table from the owner of the White House restaurant. And they were talking for a while. But finally, Bruno had to ask the question, how much are you asking? One million dollars. And Bruno was mortified. He was so embarrassed. He had wasted this man's time. What was he thinking? And all of those emotions that came on in an instant must have washed across his face. And the man understood what was going on. And so finally he asked Bruno, well, how much do you have? And Bruno said, nothing. And the man sat there for almost a minute in silence. Bruno said it was the longest time of his life. And finally the man said, I like your honesty, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to let you rent this restaurant for three years, and then you'll be able to obtain a loan and buy it for yourself. And that's what happened. Now, Bruno is a man of deep faith, and he fell in love with this restaurant, but he had no idea that his meager gift to buy this restaurant and then his ability to purchase it would give rise to this incredible ministry that, fed, that feeds thousands of children every day. But that's what happens because God is. Jesus took a small boy's lunch and fed thousands. Jesus took an Italian immigrant's meager bank uh, savings, was able to purchase a restaurant, and now is feeding thousands of children every day. God will provide for our deepest needs, especially when it comes to ministry, if we will just bring what we have and offer that to Christ. And third, because Jesus is God, he is the way. This year, we are trying to follow the way, follow Christ in all that we do, knowing that we need not fear that our needs for ministry will be met, and we will grow closer to God and closer to one another. Several years ago, almost 10 years ago, I was able to go on the trip to Russia. And I went to Russia with our daughter Hannah and my mother-in-law and a group of people from St. Luke's. We flew this long flight to Russia. We arrived in Moscow, and we were able to look around the city for a few hours But then we had to go to this train station where we were going to catch a train to Ulyanovsk. And this train was overnight and part of the day. And so by the time we arrived in Ulyanovsk, we were travel weary. We had gone for so long without a really good night's rest. And we got off the train and we were hit by the cold. Our trip was spanning the end of December and beginning of January in Russia. And so when we stepped off the train, it was bitter cold that just took our breath away. And because of that, 
our hosts from the Ulyanovs church wanted to get us out of the cold as fast as possible and back to their homes. And so before I realized what was happening, we were all scurried away into different people's cars. My daughter, Hannah, was taken in one direction and the group was taken all these different directions and I went in another. And I realized that I was all the way on the other side of the world. My daughter was all the way on the other side of the world, and I had no idea where she was or who she was with. Now, that's a a odd feeling for a mother to have, and it didn't leave me uh, very settled. I was worried. How could I get a hold of her? How could I know that things were going okay for her? I, I really was uneasy until I get to Pastor Nadia's home. She had a one-bedroom apartment that was very lovely, and she insisted on me staying in her bedroom. Now, I say she insisted. I don't really remember how she communicated it because she couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Russian. But somehow we lived together a week, and we did just fine kind of making it work. I realized as soon as I stepped into her home that Nadia was full of the presence of God, And in that moment, all of my fears and worries really just dissipated. They went away immediately. I knew that if I was with Nadia, everything was going to be okay because God was in her and living through her. She took care of all of my needs. She gave me a place to sleep, her place to sleep. She provided for all my meals. And I had no clue as to what time or where I was going. And so she literally led me every place I went. There was an occasion later in the week where the temperature dropped down to 25 below zero uh, before the windshield. And she looked at my winter coat from Oklahoma and she said, Niet. And she went to her closet and dug out this big, heavy brown fur coat. I'm not sure the animal uh, that produced it, but it was the heaviest, warmest coat. I could imagine, and she insisted I wear that the rest of the stay. To be with Nadia, I knew that everything was taken care of. It was a huge lesson for me because it helped me to focus on the mission that we were there for. I didn't have to worry about myself. I could focus on the camp that we were putting on for youth in the area of the church. I could focus on the sermons uh, that I was preparing for the worship services. I didn't have to worry about all this stuff. I could focus on ministry. And that's what it means that God is. It doesn't mean that everything will always be rosy or that we won't face obstacles and storms. But when we do, we can remember that God is. God is with us. God is present. God is powerful. God is loving. God is. Why did John emphasize over and over and over that Jesus is I am, that Jesus is God? Because he was speaking to a group of people that largely were second generation followers of Christ. John was one of the last disciples Most of the other disciples had passed away. Most of the other people who had heard and witnessed Jesus had passed on. And now the church was filling up with a second generation of Christ followers, people who had never physically seen or heard Christ. 
And so John needed them to know that just as the disciples had experienced with Jesus, they knew that Jesus was still with them. It's not that Jesus was. Jesus is. God is. It's the I am. In all the things that we experience in life, in the midst of our storms and our troubles, we need to remember that God is. Finding the way really means recognizing that the one we're with is the way. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.